Texas talking. Oh, what was that that you said? Texas talking. Ah, gonna hoop upside your head. Texas talking. Tell me who can you trust when Texas guys are Texas talking. Please welcome the editor in chief, the amazing editor in chief of the Tribune, Emily Ramshaw, and team. Good morning. Where do you want me? We want you wherever you'd like to be. Hi, everybody. I'm Emily Ramshaw. I'm the editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune, and I am the host of the Tribcast, which I hope many of you listen to every week. Um, before I introduce this bunch of sleep-deprived people, I'd like to uh, just um, mention a couple of our presenting sponsors for the Tribcast. Texas A&M University, which is dedicated to transformational learning through innovative solutions. Read Helping Children Find Their Voice on TribTalk.org. And the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. Attend Healing After Harvey, The Effects of Mental Health Six Months Later on Thursday, March 8th at the University of Houston Alumni Center. Um, I'd also like to invite you to take out your phone again after Evan told you that first time and review us on iTunes while you're here, uh, assuming, of course, that you like what you hear. And per usual, we'll have a Q&A at the end. So, um, all right, let's start by, please join me in welcoming my colleagues here on my immediate left. I have Patrick Svitek, our political reporter, our Washington, D.C. bureau chief, Abby Livingston, who's been in town embedding with us for the last couple of weeks in the lead up to the election, executive editor Ross Ramsey, and you know him, CEO Evan Smith. Uh, so please join me in welcoming our panelists this morning. So last night, obviously, was a must-watch, not just for us, but for politicos and for much of the nation. Um, you know, lots of questions around what the first in the nation primary would look like, what it would mean for Trump in the midterms in 2018. I, I want to start with turnout. There was a ton of conversation about this blue wave, about this Democratic surge in early voting totals uh, early in the week. What did we end up seeing when all the votes were counted last night? The Democrats didn't suck as bad as they did four years ago. Um, silver linings. Right, silver lining playbook, right? The turnout was 1.5 million Republicans, about a million Democratic primary votes. Um, so they closed the gap. They closed the gap a little bit. There's still 500,000 votes behind. Uh, four years ago, for perspective, the Republicans were at 1.4. The Democrats were at 560,000. Right. If you're looking for, for metrics, the Republicans were up 13.5%. The Democrats were up 85%. And if you think about it, up until yesterday, the talk was, look at how many Democrats turned out in the early vote. We're going to elect Angela Davis, governor of Texas, before <laughs> this is over, right? Do you know who right. Angela Davis is, Patrick? Sure. Yeah. Evan's always trying to date everyone. <laughs> Um, the, 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 fact, the fact is that you know, the, the optimism that was largely fueled by um, shallow national media coverage of the early vote on the Democrats' behalf is way early, way presumptuous. There is absolutely no indication yet that the Democratic early vote is going to produce different results in the fall. Right. Well, let's talk about one of the races where that sort of Democratic enthusiasm we thought was playing out, and that was in Beto O'Rourke's uh, bid to be the one challenging Ted Cruz for the Senate. You know, lots of conversation about him. He was campaigning a great deal. He was fundraising in big numbers, in some cases, three to one over Ted Cruz. And then his turnout numbers and his uh, totals last night put him at about 61%, 62% of the vote, which a lot of folks thought was um, not uh, an enthusiastic performance or showing. What was the takeaway there? Yeah, you saw, uh, we're still going through the numbers, obviously, but you saw he had some of the same problems in some ways that Wendy Davis did when she won the Democratic nomination for governor in 2014. 
he uh, underperformed or was beaten in a number of border counties, and not just in, in some border counties, but in, in some other non-border counties like Jefferson County, which is home to Beaumont, uh, not exactly a you know small, remote, far-flung county. Um, and I think at this point, again, we're still kind of diving into the numbers. It just shows that he still has a way to go in terms of being uh, well-known on a statewide basis. Uh, and we've seen that in poll, poll after poll. He's been chipping away at it, but the number of Texans who, who don't know him uh, or don't know enough about him to have an opinion uh, is still uh, a very large group. And so he has work cut out for him. Abby, you were talking about how you, you'd been in North Texas and you'd been at all these rallies and you'd seen yard signs everywhere. I mean, it, was there sort of more enthusiasm in, in the media and in this sort of small vocal set of politicos than there was in reality? I think it's, well, it was interesting. So um, where I went with him was Northeast Tarrant County and there was enthusiasm, but I also drove, I specifically on purpose drove from there, I needed to be on the southern side of Tarrant County that afternoon, so I drove through a neighborhood called Polly, which is Mark Vesey's base in East Fort Worth, and I didn't see a single sign for him, and I didn't see any, any signs for anyone. But kind of going along with what Patrick said, um, you know, there much has been made about O'Rourke outraising crews, but we're talking, he is gonna have to go on television to get his name out, and if you're outraising him by 500,000 here, 500,000 there, that's not enough for what it is gonna take for him to launch a major advertising campaign, likely without the help of national Democrats. And so it's, 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 it, these are slivers of hope for him, but he's, there's just much more fundraising that needs to happen. The, the Cruz narrative about O'Rourke, interestingly enough, is exactly what it was on the day that, that uh, O'Rourke got into race last year. On the day O'Rourke got into race, Patrick tweeted out a picture of a Snapchat filter that the Cruz campaign bought on the day that O'Rourke announced showing O'Rourke as a puppet being manipulated by Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. That was on the day O'Rourke announced. Yesterday on a call with reporters, you were on that call, right? What did Ted Cruz talk about? Beto O'Rourke is a liberal Democrat who's running to be a puppet of Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi. Right. Right? The narrative through line is a straight line. That is how they intend to run against him. They are running the, the, the most conventional playbook against a guy who the Democrats think is going to overturn the playbook. And it's really the burden is on, on O'Rourke to tell everybody why this is going to turn out any differently. This is not a definition of insanity case, right? The Wendy, da I mean, Patrick's point about the Wendy Davis thing is amazing. Look at the color map that we have on our website of the counties that O'Rourke won and the counties that the previously unknown woman who ran against him, one of two challenges in the primary, who is Hispanic. Sam Hernandez. Who has a Hispanic surname. Look at the counties that she won. She didn't have five bucks. <laughs> Nobody knew who she was. And they kept him to 61%. And everybody thought when Wendy Davis was kept to 78% that the world was coming to, the, to an end. He got 61%. That map, I think, is really a big problem. Yeah, the thing that I thought was most interesting about this vote was, you know, we've written a lot, and a lot has been talked about with Republican voters kind of having an uh, innate rejection of Hispanic names on the ballots. Hard, you know, from the days of Xavier Rodriguez running for Supreme Court, you know, and on up. I think we've got a little bit of the reverse here, you know, an Hispanic name in a low ID Democratic race um, gets. Uh, some votes that the that the Anglo name doesn't. I think O'Rourke cost you know O'Rourke turned out to be a little more harmful than Beto was helpful. Uh, right. You know in terms of in terms of right. his name. 
at the end of this, he's still the winner. 60% gets you in, and I still think this is the most interesting race on the November ballot, and I still think it's probably the race to the extent that the Democrats are excited and innervated about voting, this is the charismatic candidate who's going to pull them out. Whether that means he's going to be a winner or not, you know, I think that's a, I think that's a leap. But I still think this is the race to watch. Hey, can I ask Abby a question? So, Abby, if you're Chris Van Hollen, the chair of the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and you're looking at the results last night that O'Rourke put on the board to decide whether to invest in Texas in a year in which you have to defend a whole bunch of Democratic incumbents in states that Trump won. You want to win Nevada, where Dean Heller is running for re-election as a Republican. You think you have a chance. You want to try to win Arizona. And you've got to decide whether to put resources in Texas. Do you, if you're Chris Van Hollen, look at that 61% in those border counties and think, pass? Or do you put money into Texas? You know, I don't know if you would even get that far to that decision. Right. Um, and I, I'm going to quote my former Bureau Chief Tim Russert, Florida, Florida, Florida. That is a state that has media markets almost as expensive as Texas, and you've got Bill Nelson down there. And I think to make a move on Texas, you might have to cut him off, and that is just not how national politics work. You don't cut off incumbents to, to support challengers. So he's on his own. So, I mean, it will have to be, they get to a point where they feel like Claire McCaskill in Missouri is fine and they can pull out there and she's going to coast in Indiana. And like that is just a scenario I don't see happening anytime soon. You can win 30 Senate races or statewide races in Nevada and Arizona and states like that for every one in Texas. Texas is too expensive to it's invest in unless, you're, week, unless right? you're on the bubble in Texas. The nationals from either party aren't going to invest in statewide races. The question though is, could some billionaire in San Francisco create a super PAC for Beto? And he's saying, I don't want this. Don't do this for me. But you know, he has no control. And so right. is there someone out there who just likes him as a candidate and wants to do that? You know, they, all, they all become the thing they despise in the end. Right? Oh, I'm not going to take motto. the money. Yeah. Well, Robert Redford. <clears throat> well, we'll I, I want to stick with Abby for one second and talk about um, what, for me, was probably the you know, second biggest headline of the night. And that was, speaking of Hispanic surnames, that we are almost certain to send uh, two Latina, not just one, but Texas's first two Latina women to Congress, correct? That's correct. And it was, um, you know, the question last night was whether they would go to runoffs. And it looked like very early that they were going to be uh, uh, that they were going to clear it. I, I, one of the best quotes I've read uh, overnight was from the Texas Observer, and it was from Mary Street Wilson, who had $40,000 running in Texas 21 on the Dem side. And she beat, she's going to a runoff with Joseph Kopser, who was the heralded guy who was running a great campaign. And she basically just said, I know I got default votes because I'm a woman. And so um, I got a text last night from someone in House leadership who was saying, national leadership saying, uh, not a good night for men, a good night for women. And so I think for the first time I've seen in a long, maybe in my lifetime, it was better to be a woman on the ballot or easier than a man. I saw a similar tweet last night. I believe it was from Michael Lee, you know, the redistricting wizard. But he said, basically, if you look at, at virtually every Democratic primary matchup, he said, there are only a handful where the woman is not beating the man. It was, it was right. a pretty interesting night. You have two women running in the runoff to, get, to be Will Hurd's challenger. Mm -hmm. You had a women uh, won outright in El Paso, woman won outright in Houston. You have two women running in the runoff to face John Carter in Round Rock, a woman who people did not think was going to get into the runoff necessarily in Dallas to be <coughs> against a uh, can candidate against Pete Sessions is 
is in the runoff there. Right. Did, uh, did Judy Canales, it is Judy Canales and no, Gina No, she Ortiz. finished third. Oh, so it ended up just being one woman. In, Jesse in Trevino, yeah. Uh, Rick Trevino. Rick Trevino, yeah. sorry. But, sorry the point, but I think your, your general point is right. All things equal, you would have rather been a woman on the ballot this year. But right. Unless you were Kathleen Wall. Well, and, there, and then and, you're just out a lot of cash. Yeah. And Emily's list basically ran the table in getting their candidates over the line oh, into right. the runoff. Fletcher, Fletcher and Moser yeah. in Houston is another one, right? Yeah. And so that, I mean, that says a lot about Emily's list, but they're not in line with National Democrats in some of these races. And so we may see, I don't know if it'll manifest in the runoff, but this is something that I guarantee you the folks in Washington are looking at and trying to figure out how this plays out in other states going forward. Mm -hmm. Well, um, over the last few weeks on episodes of the Tribcast, we had very uh, animated conversations about what was going to happen in the Ag Commissioner Republican primary, what was going to happen in the Land Commissioner Republican primary, and whether these incumbents, George P. Bush and Sid Miller, were in trouble. Turns out, Patrick, they were hardly in trouble at all. No, they avoided runoffs, and they avoided runoffs by pretty healthy margins. I think they were both in the mid to mid to high 50s, and so these challenges didn't, uh, you know, ultimately live up to the hype. I think. One thing that was, you know, <laughs> grabbed your attention was what happened in the agriculture commissioner race. Uh, Trey Blocker was running a very serious challenger campaign, uh, well-funded professional operation, and uh, Jim Hogan kind of crashed the party. There, uh, Jim Hogan was uh, the Democratic nominee last uh, 2014. Uh, this time, at the last minute, he decided to run as a Republican. Yeah, he crashes every party. And he basically party. upended uh, <laughs> Trey Blocker's chances of- Did he end uh, up finishing ahead of Blocker? Uh, last time I saw the numbers, yeah, he was he finished ahead of Blocker oh, slightly. This is, um, the, this is the guy who didn't leave his house in Cleburne and cooked goat on the day of the election last time? Right. Had and no campaign worked out of a worked out of a, a little desk at the public library, right? Spent $5,000 on And last showed week. up at our office last election cycle like the Unabomber with like 100 pages of yellow <laughs> uh, notepad paper that he'd scribbled his election treatise in pencil. Right. That, yeah. guy beat, that guy beat right. Trey Blocker. Right. right. So it's, it was, so I mean, were you surprised? This was obviously a case where there was sort of more hype. Was there more hype because the, the opposing candidates, you know, people like Jerry Patterson or Trey Blocker, made a lot of noise and, and there was just not really that much well, I think interest in the community? At least in the case of Jerry Patterson's candidacy, I mean, he was somebody who was very skilled and very effective at getting earned media. Um, and opposition <laughs> research, yep. Sure, I mean, whatever you think of him, um, you know, for how little he raised and how short of a race this was, he got in pretty late, if I recall, in, in December before the filing deadline. Uh, he was able to garner a lot of attention and, uh, you know, really effectively apply a lot of scrutiny to George P. Bush's first term when it came to uh, the Alamo and the, the housing uh, response to Hurricane Harvey. Mm -hmm. Turns out Jerry Patterson was Santa Ana in the end, right? <laughs> there was a lot of poll, there was a lot of, um, talk around this race, but it turns out, you know, I want to salute our pollsters. Our polling turned out to be right on this. Um, when we asked our questions in early February about, you know, where are you on the ag race, where are you on the land race, there were a large number of undecided Republicans in the first round, but when you pressed them, we got to 57% you got to mid Bush and 54% um, right. Sid Miller, and those turned out to be pretty close to the final result. And again, here is a case where the national media, God bless them, they swoop in for a couple days, still wearing their parachutes, they report on these stories, and then they get back to D.C., and you would have thought that George P. Bush, you know, pour one out for George P. Bush, right. right? The national media was pronouncing the end of the Bush dynasty across the board. And, you know, in the end, he had the last laugh. You got, you know, you got to give him credit. You got to give Miller credit. They gutted it out. Right. There was, you know, there was all this talk. And we were probably certainly contributors to this in the sense that we entertained the possibility that there were going to be these, me. 
I, I said on, on I, I said last night on, on Twitter I was willing to eat shit over these races, just not Nutella. Um, but 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 yeah, we're entertaining the possibility that both Bush and and, and uh, Miller were going to end up in runoffs, and now it just seems like what were we thinking, right? And and often at this moment, that's what we end up saying. What we were in a fever dream. What were we thinking? Well, I want to talk about the governor himself, but before we do that, I want to talk about the governor's race on the Democratic side. Obviously, we had Andrew White and Lupe Valdez who are headed to a runoff. Were there any surprises either in, in you know, what the final numbers looked like? Did any of you expect one of them to take it outright? Well, Lupe Valdez was certainly saying that she would take it outright. <laughs> she said that to a reporter hours before the, the polls closed. But I think most of us expected it to uh, go to a runoff between those two. Um, I was actually a little bit surprised how strong White's number was. Um, again, all, all of these candidates who were running for governor on the Democratic side uh, were not particularly well known on a statewide basis. Obviously, Lupe Valdez uh, ran countywide a bunch of times in Dallas County, well known up there. So given all of that, I was a little bit surprised just how far ahead Val Valdez and White were combined, um, given just how much of a muddle it was. And there's, I think, there's a lot of uncertainty, I thought, heading into it. Mm -hmm. Any questions? Does this raise any questions about what you know the next couple of months look like ahead of the runoff? I mean, does he ha does White have a chance to make greater inroads, or do you think it's a given for Lupe? I, you know, it's a race. I mean, you know, it starts over. the The period between the primary and the runoff is actually longer than the period between the holidays and the primary. So they've got, uh, you know, they've got almost three months to develop a race and to to figure this out. Neither one of them has a bunch of money, and and you know as Abby pointed out a minute ago in another race, this is an expensive place to run, and you've got to get your name known. You know one of the things that was interesting about O'Rourke's race was that there been there's been so much um, news media attention to that race, and presumably high name ID, and still two unknowns get almost forty percent. Right. You know Andrew White has a little bit of that problem. Lupe Valdez has the advantage of having been on the Dallas County ballot four times, and that, and that edge may have been enough in this race, maybe enough in May. The, the, the other theme here, I think, Emily, is the candidate with the most money often didn't do best, right. and in many cases didn't make the runoff across the board. Right, there are so, several examples of this. Well, Lupe Valdez did not raise very much money. Andrew White loaned himself a million dollars, but in the end, that million dollars still was money he had available to him to spend in this race. He had much more money than she did. She finished in first. Ed Meyer in the Sessions race, Abby Wright, go down the list. Ed Meyer was the most, uh, was the best funded candidate of the Democrats? Yeah, and on that one specifically, like, you know, I gave him the benefit of the doubt of making the runoff, and I mean, I, I, my logic was flawed, but it also made sense at the same time. On my way to Dallas to meet him, my mom in Fort Worth said, who are you meeting? And I said, Ed Meyer, and she said, oh, I know him. I've seen him on TV. Right. Well, my mom lives in Fort Worth and not in the district, so he was spending <laughs> on broadcast, and that's an inefficient form of advertising, right. so didn't help that Harriet Livingston knew who he was. Right, so he, so he had the most money in that race. He finished out of the running. Alex Trantafillis in Houston in the Culberson race as a Democrat had raised the most or nearly the most. He finished out. Jay Hoolings in San Antonio was a very strong fundraising uh, uh, leader at various points in that race on the Democratic side. Right. He didn't make the runoff. And then the Kathleen Wall reference we made earlier, this is a woman who spent $6 million of her own money and got how many votes? Not much. She missed She's, the runoff by a hundred some. But but but, she, but in total she got 
It's it's an, an absurd number of votes for well, six 12, million. About over twelve thousand votes. She got about twelve thousand votes and spent six million dollars to do so it. She will almost right. certainly be the winner of our annual or our uh, you know quiz of who spent the most per vote. The bounce per right. ounce thing is going to be totally the old deal. John yeah. Connolly yeah. won. So, right. and, and you know and so this what what this tells you is that and, and Joseph Kopser, who was mentioned earlier, who was significantly ahead in fundraising of Mary Wilson, right. you know didn't even finish in first in that race. Uh, money just didn't matter this time. It just didn't. Well, I'm going to ask you all to grade the governor on his performance. But before we switch gears, I want to thank one more TribCast sponsor, Pearson. Pearson is inspired by the future. Learn more about Texas initiatives that focus on lifelong learning by reading Hungry for an Economic Future on TribTalk.org. All right, let's grade the governor. He took the really unusual step of endorsing against three sitting incumbents in the House, House Republican incumbents, Sarah Davis, Lyle Larson, Wayne Faircloth. How'd he do? Well, he went one, he went one for three. Um, and he, he won the race that uh, I think most people in the, in the final days expected him to win, which was uh, Mays Middleton, who was the primary challenger to Wayne Faircloth in, in Galveston, and he lost the two other races. Um, and in those races, the margins were, were pretty decisive. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I guess this is 33%. I, I think those three races landed the same way they would have landed if Greg Abbott had never opened his mailbox I just or his bank account. Um, you know, Mays Middleton was well-financed running against Wayne Faircloth. You know, the odds were against Faircloth in that race. The odds were for Sarah Davis. The odds were for Lyle Larson. Yep. I think if the governor, if you'd had a parallel universe where the governor didn't play, you'd have the same result, same numbers. But I actually think Abbott may have had the reverse effect. I think Sarah Davis and Lyle Larson's hands were strengthened by the governor coming out against them. And I think Faircloth actually got a tiny bit of wind in his back. Yeah as a result of the backlash against Abbott, unprecedented a governor getting into a primary to endorse against an incumbent legislative member of his own party. Never happened before. The outcome would have been exactly the same. I actually wondered if Faircloth might come back as a result of, of, of Abbott's a, a attack. Abbott had a bad night. Dan Patrick had a great night. Yeah. So if Abbott, Abbott had, had a bad, bad night, night, I mean, what was the political calculus then behind Abbott's decision to endorse? Like, why do you get into, why do you even play in these races if the outcome is, you know, all but certain? They never made a crystal clear argument about what this was about and why they were in it and why voters should, you know, reconsider those races. And I think that's partly why they didn't, why they ended up having no effect. It's not about money, it's about message. And they didn't have a clear vote this way because of this of the 95 Republicans in the Texas House and the 20 Republicans in the Texas Senate, I chose these three races because blank, blank, blank. That was never clear to the people that watch this stuff all the time. It was never clear to voters. And I think it's why he never, you know, he ultimately had no effect. Right. I mean, and I think with Sarah Davis in particular, this is going to be really interesting because she's, you know, there are only three potential outcomes. She, you know, comes back to the House and she's right. in leadership and she screws with him. She comes back to the House and she's not in leadership and she still has every incentive to screw with him. Right. Or a Democrat is elected to the seat. Well, there's a fourth yeah. outcome. And this was the theory being floated yesterday by people who were pre-budding the outcome <laughs> last night. Yes, Sarah Davis and Lyle Larson are going to win, but they're going to be put on lousy committees, and any bills that they pass are going to be dead on arrival because the governor is going to veto them. If they're they put, think, if they think they've won the who? war, what? Yeah, by, we, the, by the speaker, we don't know. Well, the, but the assumption is the assumption is that if you're the new speaker and you put Sarah Davis or Lyle Larson in a position to pass a bill that the governor doesn't like. Governor's going to veto anything that they touch. The, the, the theory that was floated yesterday was that this will have a long tail. I don't know that I necessarily believe it, but it's an interesting second act to this fight. That yeah. theory depends on the idea that, you know, 
members of the House and members of the Senate come in and look at this and say, oh, the governor might get after you if you don't follow orders, you should be scared. And that, you could take that message away. You he know, maybe he'll come at you. After but he didn't hit anybody. It's like, don't, you know, who's afraid of the big bad wolf? Yeah, just going off what Ross said, I think one of the things to consider going forward is what message does this send? Right. And isn't it an effective message to other incumbents who may be thinking of crossing Abbott in the future? And, um, you know, some of them may talk a big game, but I think at the end of the day, if they have the choice between the governor spending a, you know, a quarter, a close to a quarter million dollars in the district versus not spending close right. to a quarter million dollars in the district, I'm sure they go with the, the latter. Right. Right. Well, speaking of endorsements and endorsing challengers, what kind of night did Empower Texans have, did the far right have? Not great. I mean, you know, the, a friend of mine sent me a note last night, Republican consultant, uh, so much money, so little change. Um, which I thought was a pretty good note for the election. The incumbents who lost were Craig Estes, Wayne Faircloth, Jason Vialba, Deanna Arevalo, Tomas Oresti, who died from sibling headlines, um, <laughs> Donna Dukes, and Roberto Alonzo. Um, you know, who's, which of those did the Empower Texans guys get? There were two runoff incumbents, Renee Oliveira and uh, Scott Cosper. Cosper was a target. Uh, they didn't win their challenge races. Um, they were, they got mixed results in the open seat races. I think they had a lousy night. Mm -hmm. Well, you mentioned siblings just a second ago. Uh, yeah. Tell us what happened in the other race where there are um, sibling and fraternal relations. Yeah, again, <laughs> this is a marital relations. I, I wish I'd thought of this line. It was somebody else's, but okay. a friend of mine called that the nepotism bowl. This is right. the Senate race. <laughs> and, um, in Collin County, where the spouse of the sitting attorney general was running against the twin brother of a sitting Dallas senator, uh, the spouse won. So we've got two Paxtons now. Uh, Angela Paxton won handily, as it turned out. You know, mm -hmm. um, I, the last time I looked, it was about 10 points. You think the lieutenant governor's yeah. endorsement there helped? I think, yeah, I certainly think it didn't hurt at all. Um, and you know, it was one of those interesting things where the lieutenant governor chose to go with Angela Paxton over the twin brother of one of his own senators. So it was sort of an interesting race. Paxton, as Evan said a minute, or, or Patrick, as Evan said a minute ago, had a really great night. He, he won the Fallon-Estes race. He had endorsed against Estes. He uh, won the Bob the, Hall race. Was on the right side of the Bob Hall race, was on the right side of the Paxton race. Their one miss, and they've disavowed real interest in the Seliger race. Uh, <laughs> they did it a little late, but um, uh, the Victor Leal campaign was run by Alan Blakemore, who is um, Dan Patrick's chief consultant. He finished third. Um, so Emily, may, may God strike me down for saying this, but can I say a word on behalf of Jonathan Stickland? Evan, if you would like to do that, be my guest. I actually don't know that the, that the, the Freedom Caucus slash Empower slash Movement uh, slash Blow the Place Up guys had quite the bad night that Ross said. I, might I don't know, there are already scorecards floating around this room. I, I, I might actually argue that in a bunch of the open seats they got guys elected. I mean, look, what they didn't want to be able to do or have to do on the morning after the election was say, we did have a great night. See, we got Steve Toth elected back to the House. <laughs> that was not going to be enough. The fact is they did get a, a bunch of guys in the open seats. They, and they held their guys. There was a drumbeat for the last couple of weeks that Kyle Biederman might lose his primary in Fredericksburg. Right. He didn't. Um, yeah, they didn't pick off Giovanni Capriglione. They didn't pick off... Charlie Guerin. Charlie Guerin. They didn't pick off a whole long list of people. But, but in terms of numbers, they definitely added to their ranks. And you know, while it may not ultimately be conclusive in terms of being able to pick a speaker, or it may not be able to be conclusive in terms of being able to pass a bill or kill a bill, 
it is the case that they did do better. Yeah, I was, I was going to add to that. And yeah, obviously, if you look at it as, you know, okay, here are all the candidates and challengers that Empowered Texans endorsed, and only, you know, a small percentage of it yeah. were people who ultimately won or went to a runoff. That's one way of looking at it. But you also, I agree with Evan. I mean, you have to consider, for, at least in this, look at, you look at the Senate specifically, they are getting, that wing of the party is, is in some ways getting two senators who are now more closely aligned right. with the lieutenant governor than the person, the Republican, right. that they're replacing. Kel, Kel, Kel Seliger is on And Pat Island. Fallon. Kel so that, on that's going to increase right. the, the pressure uh, in the next session on the House from the Senate. Ha, you know, Dan Patrick's going to have an even more unified caucus behind him. How do you beat um, 31 to nothing? Right, mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, that's um, what they gave him last time. Yeah, and, and the Freedom Caucus is adding members. I mean, it is, it's not losing members, and it's not stay, you know, staying yeah. at zero. So we'll see what happens in the fall. It. You know, one of the right. people who the Freedom guys are touting as one of the people who's going to join their ranks is the woman who beat Vialba, Jason Vialba, in Dallas, Lisa Luby Ryan. The reality is the Democrats' chances of picking back up that seat Right. went through the stratosphere last night by the Alba losing because the Democratic candidate is kind of a regular old person. John He's Turner. John Turner, the Haynes and Boone lawyer who's the son of the former Congressman Jim Turner. And Lisa Luby Ryan is really pretty significantly to the right of the mainstream of the Republican Party were you to do the entirety of the district as opposed to just the primary base. You know, I believe she's, anti I hope I'm not getting, she is an anti-vaccine candidate, I believe. I've heard that. I don't know that. Yeah, you know. I mean, she she is from a she is more from the Susanna Dacapil rather than than Sarah Davis wing of the party. Right. And it is possible that that becomes a potential Democratic pickup. So I would say maybe let's just wait and see what happens in November. And so, and Vialba's loss means that there is now only one um, conservative Hispanic in the legislature. Correct. One one Republican Hispanic in the right. legislature. Right. Uh, J.M. Lozano, um, right. a former Democrat who flipped a few years ago. Um, at the time when the Republican Party was making a really strong, behind Rick Perry, making a very strong push for increasing the number of Hispanics, uh, both in the representation and in the voter base of the Republican Party. You could get a second Hispanic Republican if Cynthia Flores wins the race to, uh, to succeed Larry Gonzalez in District 52, but the demographics of that district are slowly changing. Right. And the Democrats have a candidate who they consider to be a pretty good candidate, James Tallarico, in that race. It's just not, we just don't know what's going to happen. So, Ross, do you feel like we're in a, in a position at all to make any predictions about what the makeup, how the makeup of the, the Texas legislature could change after November? You know, the, the, just the, by the numbers in November, the Democrats have a pretty good chance of picking up, you know, a handful of seats in the Texas House. A lot of this depends on you know what kind of year Trump has. This last night didn't give you, or didn't give me much of an indication of how the Trump winds are blowing uh, at this point and uh, in in Texas in terms of you know how this is going to affect a November race. Uh, if Trump has a bad midterm or a or a moderately bad intern, the Democrats could pick up you know five or six seats. I'd love to hear Abby on that. Do you have a sense in the congressional races what the Trump effect was? Not at this point. I mean, what I took away from last night was Democrats have a high class problem of zillions of recruits, and na the national folks have almost no control over the primaries. And um, we saw that in Texas 23, and we saw that in Texas 7. And it's not a criticism of them. It's just a, a very strange problem, because they've, had a, they've not been able to recruit. Can you explain the Laura Moser thing to us? Yeah, I want to talk about Texas 7 specifically. I mean, obviously, this was a race that exposed a great divide in the, in the Democratic Party operation nationally. So this district is West Houston. It's River Oaks out to Katy. 
And um, I'd heard rumblings for months that Moser was not going to be a great general election candidate, but I don't think until January there was like a real serious thought that she would make the runoff and then started the rumbling started. And then when I got the tip that the DCCC went nuclear on her by dumping an oppo file, which really no one had seen ever in politics in that, that overt of a way, um, it, it definitely, um, my Twitter feed exploded that night, but most of the rage was coming from Brooklyn, New York. But when I got on the ground in Houston, um, there really was a visceral outrage of people who liked other candidates who said, I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Um, and so, she, and she made a joke at an event. She said, I don't really have to worry about fundraising right now. The DCCC is taking care of it for me. So it's going to be a great runoff. The, the, other candidate is Lizzie Panel Fletcher, and she's sort of quintessential Houston. She went, she left for college and law school and came back. And Moser has spent a lot of time in Washington and came back more recently. Right. They both went to the same right. private high school. So they both went be, to St. John's. This is basically, you know, a battle to be who's more of the one percent. Right. So it, it feels like a, a local fight, and it's it's going to be really fun to watch. Well, and some of these congressional races had just an extraordinary number of candidates, um, particularly Texas 21, the race to replace Lamar Smith, which had 18 Republican candidates. What did that matchup end up looking like? Who's headed to the runoff in that race? Yeah, the runoff came down to Chip Roy, who's Ted Cruz's former chief of staff, and Matt McCall, who had uh, previously run against Lamar Smith uh, twice and lost. He primaried him. Is that um, what we expected? I mean, I know there's some other, there were it, it a was, handful of other big it names. It was in that within race. the realm of possibility in the days leading up to it, in my view. <laughs> uh, one of the big stories there was that uh, the pro uh, Roy forces uh, on the outside were able to keep William Negley out of the runoff. He came in third place, missed the runoff by a pretty cl a decisive margin. Another rich person um, who didn't get in the runoff, right? Right, exactly. This is someone from a very, uh, he's from San Antonio, from a very famous family. Um, famous ancestors. <laughs> I mean, it goes way, way back. And he's a former CIA agent. Um, in a runoff, he would have had uh, the capacity to spend a lot of money. He had a number of super PACs helping him on the, on the outside. And so he would have been, I think, a real threat to Chip Roy um, in a runoff. But instead, Chip Roy was uh, able to get the most votes last night and then get into a runoff with Matt McCall, uh, who I don't think is going to be as, as serious of a threat. Not, not, a, not someone not to take seriously, but not as serious of a threat as if he had to face off with William Negley. Here's another note about the Roy race and that primary. So you had three house, current House members step out of the Texas House to run for Congress. Kevin Roberts in the Poe District in Houston. Um, Lance Gooden in the Henserling District in uh, North Texas. Finished first. And Isaac in the Chip Roy District. Finished who, out of the money. Who going into yesterday thought that of those three, the one who was not going to make the runoff was Isaac, of those three? I, I actually, <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily think that I thought Isaac would make the runoff, but I absolutely didn't think that both Gooden and Roberts would make the run. Well, in particular, the, the chatter on Roberts was really bad. The chatter you know, going into yesterday was, was that, Roberts was not going to make the run. Right. And so, he finished in first. So don't listen to the chatter. Right. Right. That was the biggest stunner of the night for me, that. Um, and um, I, I mean, to be in Houston last week, Kathleen Wall was the most famous person in that city. I mean, everyone, everyone I talked to, have you seen her ads? Um, 
but in a good way or a bad way. And that's I spent most of the first part of the week with in a Trey Blocker stab your hog feral hog way. <laughs> I spent. <laughs> yes, if still by, my still my favorite video. If, of by, the, yeah. if by stab you mean couldn't make, and by hog you mean a sentence. That's, <laughs> that was that was how that was different. Her ads were terrible. Well, and I you know I spent the first part of the week with Democrats because I was doing Texas Seven, so they were all making fun of them, and I was kind of just taking it with a grain of salt. Um, then I went and did reporting on Texas 2 with that, the, the wall race, published my story on Sunday morning. I go to breakfast with some family members in Houston, and one of my conservative relatives, the wife said, we got the mailer the day after the Parkland shooting, which was an image of wall with um, a gun. And that was not her fault. It was already in the mail. But then her husband, my, friend, or my, my, my relative's cousin, uh, my relative's husband, he's a conservative hunter, and he just said, Mm -mm. I like that Crenshaw guy. I just want a, someone who's a retired Navy SEAL. And I just wish I'd heard that story before my story published, because he completely read that election. Dan Crenshaw just came out of nowhere. I think as of the latest filings, he'd spent 92000 compared to her $4.3 And it's just, they advertised on digital. So it was, it was really, it, it was, advertising can backfire. And that's, so, that, so Robert's, it's Robert's Crenshaw. Yes. Right. right. So the military, Crenshaw is the, is the former SEAL. And then and the other retired military guy who made a runoff was Elzy, Jake Elzy right. and Ron Ryder in together the, in, in, the, the Barton in the Barton District. Right? Yeah, Ron Wright almost won that, didn't quite do it. You know, I think a lot of people thought um, he was going to win that in spite of the large number of candidates. I think he was 48 and change, 48% um, and change. I went block walking with Elzy, and he was a very compelling candidate. So it'll be interesting yeah. to watch. He's a Rick Perry favorite. He's kind of. Uh, um, Perry endorsed him in a previous house race, endorsed him in this one. And, uh, interesting cat. I want to ask when the last time a, a house incumbent in Texas got only 11% of the vote in their own primary. <laughs> you know, that's a bad day. <laughs> Speaking of uh, Donna Duke, so what kind right. of night, well, day, night, month, six months, year did Donna Dukes have? And she, how did you know, this up? whole election was a referendum on the incumbent, you know, which is sort of the worst frame you can get if you're an incumbent unless you're, you know, some kind of a hero. And uh, everything that could go wrong uh, that happened to her went wrong. Everything that could go wrong that a candidate could do to herself went wrong. Um, and she finished completely out of the money in this, in this thing. Um, the, the biggest mistake, I think, at the end of this was that she got out of the race and gave a couple of people time to say, well, if that's an open seat, I'm going to get in, and then got back in the race, and they didn't follow instructions to get out. Um, so, um, I think Cheeto finishing first in that race is really right. interesting. The two people who jumped in, you know, forcefully when she got out are the two people that are in the runoff, and, you know, I, mean, I think did, she wrote that book. But didn't you think Cheryl Cole, if, if Donna was not going to make the runoff, that Cheryl Cole would finish in first? I, 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 you know, I, thought I that maybe wasn't paying enough attention to the details the of that race. I actually, I actually thought it was kind of a dot race. The, the district has uh, turned Hispanic, uh, at least in population, uh, not quite ready in, in electorate. But um, I think it's going to be a really good, interesting runoff. It, it, it will. Yep. Uh, and one more house race I want to talk about. So we have Trey Martinez-Fisher almost certainly coming back to the Texas House, which means a lot of additionally late nights and a lot of uh, throwing of the rule book. C calm, more rational points of order. behavior. <laughs> well, right. you know, the, the Democrats. No being made. You know, the Democrats haven't been as focused in the last couple of cycles as they, as they were, you know, before that. And one of the people that was um, one of the focusers was Trey Martinez-Fisher. You like him or not, you know, he, was, he had an ability to pull those guys together on, on certain issues and to 
make that block work like a block. As you go into a speaker race, having Trey Martinez Fisher back in harness is a really interesting thing for the Democrats because for all of the um, noise the Freedom Caucus has made about getting the Republican bloc together and doing all of this, a lot of that's predicated on a loose set of Democrats and the Democrats not, might not be as loose. I'm, I don't want to hang it on one guy, but he does know how to help them focus. Uh, Garnet Coleman's still there. He knows how to do this. I think the Democrats are the most important bloc in the speaker's race. So you think the Red Sea parts, just because Trey gets reelected and everybody who's running Malk and everybody who's running the Democratic caucus goes, oh, here you go. Here's the keys to the thing? No. No, but I think that you know they've got somebody who's going to force them to either uh, focus behind you know, himself or behind somebody else. They're not going to just flagellate. Uh, I think that the, I think they're, they're going to get a focus out of this. I don't know whether he'll be the leader of it, but I think having him back in there, somebody who knows how to do this and somebody who knows how to uh, run things from the back mic as best you can do that is going to be very interesting. Well, we're going to open it up for questions in just a moment here. But before we do, I just want to ask each of you, what's the most important takeaway from the night we haven't discussed? Or what's the one factoid from a race that you thought was most interesting? Give me one last closing nugget that not everybody here knows about. I think, I mean, Evan uh, talked about this earlier, but I'll just emphasize it, that money, people who self-funded in a major way really struggled last night. It wasn't just Kathleen Wall. It was uh, Tahir Javed in Gene Green's congressional district. He missed the runoff against Sylvia Garcia despite spending hundreds of thousands of dollars of his own money. It was people like Philip Hoffines who lost uh, pretty soundly in the, in the state Senate race despite pouring millions of dollars of his own money into it. Um, it was just across the board. It was, it was hard to find someone who self-funded at that level and got a good Well, Angela Paxton didn't exactly run a GoFundMe page. I mean, she had, she sure. had money, right? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. I mean, she, was, she got a $2 million loan guaranteed by her husband's campaign, and then later a $500,000 loan directly from her husband's campaign. So I guess that's a, a form of self-funding. But, but your yeah. point is exactly right. right. Yeah. Who's next? Um, I think two points. One, I think the US House is going to be hard to capture. Just There were just a lot of weird things that happened last night that made it seem like this is going to be a really hard if we see more from Texas elsewhere. The other thing is less about last night, but it was a metaphor that I've liked for a while and I got permission to use it. Uh, um, I was asked last week in a media interview, like, is the blue wave coming to Texas? And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, we're not talking sweeps of statewide officials, but I, had, uh, I sat down with a Democrat um, right before Christmas 2016, and the way it was explained to me, the strategy was, we're like in Star Wars A New Hope. We're all gassing up our engines and our jets, and we're all flying to the Death Star. And we know most of us are going to get shot down. <laughs> but if one of us can break through here and there, that's a success. So that's sort of the, the, the way I've looked at this the whole year. The Death Star approach. Yeah. Right? I, you know, one of the groups that didn't do well last night, and you know, because they were a little bit unfocused and haven't, you know, in a way that the Empower Texans groups weren't, were the education candidates. You know, Scott Milder, um, Kristen Tassin in the Senate, uh, Jim Largent in the House. Right. The candidates that came on the public, in, public education thing uh, didn't prevail. They didn't have the force that they'd had. This has been the question on education issues since 1986, the last time education was a real force to Mark White's chagrin um, when the teachers came out. Um, there's a lot of conversation around public education, but it's not driving primaries at this point. The wave wasn't blue, it was pink. All things equal, you'd rather be a woman this year. And I think that's the, the biggest takeaway from yesterday is that women candidates in this particular year, maybe it's because of the atmospheric forces around us, Me Too and what have you, 
where there's been a larger discussion of the place of women in various verticals, media industry, Hollywood, politics. Um, this was the year that you would have all things equal rather than a woman on, on the ballot. In the history of Texas, there have been 155 women elected to the Texas legislature, fewer than the number of seats in one Texas legislative session. There are only three women in the Texas congressional delegation out of 36. And more than half the population of Texas is women. It's overdue. It's a correction. And I think the biggest takeaway is whether you are a Republican woman or a Democratic woman, with the exception of Kathleen Wall, this was the year to be a woman on the ballot. And I think the wave, in the end, will prove to be pink and not blue. All right, questions out there. And uh, Agnes, we have a mic out there, right? OK, great. Please use the mic if you can, since we're recording this. Oh, a couple of minutes ago, uh, you talked about the speaker race, and as, as though the Democrats would be able to participate in that. Is that a foregone conclusion? Uh, nothing's a foregone conclusion in a speaker's race. I think the best analysis of a speaker's race probably comes from a psychologist instead of a pundit, um, because I think a lot of these don't move on party tectonics. Um, you know, the, that this block or that block is going to be in control of a race, you know, usually turns out to be less influential than relationships, then where am I in line? If I'm third in line with that candidate and 17th in line with that candidate, then I'm more likely to be a chairman if I vote over here. Those kinds of things are more important. But to the extent that this is about how blocks vote and how the plates move around, if you can, if the Democrats can come to the table with 55 or 60 votes, Everybody trying to get to 76 in a speaker's race is going to run and see if there's some kind of a way to get those 60 votes. I think it's important. Other questions from the audience? Yes, Agnes, we have one over here. Sorry to make you run around. Don't give that man a microphone. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I know this is thinking way too far down the road. Uh, and it's not a primary question, but it dawns on me that we probably are going to have two Senate vacancies prior to or right at the beginning of the legislative session, Oresti and Garcia. And Garcia is the other one. And so uh, what does that mean if all of a sudden we show up first Tuesday and second Tuesday in January and the Democrats are two seats down vacant? for most of the session. Uh, it means that um, it's easier for a Republican lieutenant governor to run the Senate. Well, you assume so. that Oresti is not going to resign in time for the governor to call, even if he slow plays at a special election that would put a Democrat in that seat by the session. I, 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 I don't think that's a safe assumption, yeah. I, I mean, I, I assume Oresti, if, if Oresti is out, my assumption is Oresti is out soon enough that the governor calls a special. Hell, Roland Gutierrez is basically measuring the drapes in that office now, whether that's correct or not. You know, subtlety is not one of his strong suits. Um, I think on the Garcia thing, Garcia, if, you know, that district, if Garcia were killed by an asteroid, her corpse would beat a Republican in that congressional race. The fact is, Garcia could resign now if she wanted to. If she wanted to force the hand of the governor in terms of the special election, she could conceivably resign now. And again, there are plenty of people, Carol Alvarado, Armando Wally, who might be looking at that Senate race, who are perfectly happy to activate and get in that race immediately. The timetable could result in those two 
seats being full. Yeah, an early resignation in that race would be an interesting piece of politics. Don't By the way, on the House side, we have uh, Ron Reynolds was uh, basically re-elected last night, exactly. even though he may spend his next session in jail. Right. Easily, Don, easily right. re-elected, yeah. Donna Duke's non-criminal beaten. Right. <laughs> Ron Reynolds. Tomas, Tomas Oresti, related to a criminal, beaten. Exactly. <laughs> Ron Reynolds soars back into office. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. Other questions? T Tomas Oresti ends up being like the Billy Bulger of the, of the, of the <laughs> Texas House, unfortunately. So. Well, from what you said this morning, if um, you were a Democrat and you would like to replace our governor and you're going, you're going to vote in the runoff election for Democrat uh, governor, who would you vote for? <laughs> nice try. Pass. <laughs> I don't, I, I mean, I don't think you have a shot at replacing the governor, whoever you vote for. Yeah, let, me, let, me, let me come in another door. Greg Abbott remains very, very strong with Republicans and not completely hated by Democrats in the way that a Trump is or that a Cruz is. And you know, I think you've got a very strong incumbent that you're trying to knock off, and you have to make a really, really strong case. You just have to figure out which, if any, of those candidates can make a really strong case against a governor that people aren't really dissatisfied with. And there are 45 million reasons and counting why he's likely to win in the fall. Right, right his but, bank account. But I would probably start by asking the Democratic Party why they didn't put a stronger candidate up in the first place. Right. This is at least the case that Andrew White is, has been pressing at every turn, which is that he's the best candidate to take on uh, Greg Abbott in November. He's the one who's most openly campaigning toward that, that question, basically. Um, and he points to his, his fundraising, for, for example, which, yes, was better than anyone else in the Democratic primary field, uh, but it still is you know, dwarfed by Abbott's current fundraising situation and his capacity going forward. So it's, it's still an incredibly tough. I mean, I, I'm remembering the 2014 race. Abbott only debated Wendy Davis one time in the Valley on a Friday night during high school football season. Right. If Lupe Valdez is the nominee of the Democratic Party, Abbott may debate her a thousand times. Right? I mean, this is th this race is going to be. This is going to be the, the non-race of non-races. And you know, honestly, if you go back to the Beto O'Rourke conversation we had at the beginning, Beto O'Rourke suffers from looking to his left and looking to his right and there being only air. He has no cover whatsoever on that ballot. Right. At the top. I mean, all this, the statewide, let, let us say he what is- He is effectively the top of the ballot. Let us say what is undeniably the case. This is the weakest Democratic statewide ticket in years, shaping up to be, weakest, yeah. top to bottom, weakest, weakest, weakest accepting the Senate race. And so the, implica the, the, the implications of that from a, a Senate race standpoint are not helpful for him. Right. Questions? Other questions? Yes. Come around here and then here. Evan, the wave being pink, not blue, and I know till we see the results of certain runoffs, but do you see that as a unique factor in the primaries, or will it extend into the general? If so, will it be partisan, or is that a true nonpartisan wave? Well, let me let, let Abby and I, take a whack at that. You're referring to gender, right? Yes. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, we, the state of Texas, and I found this fact, I'm really proud of myself, and it became, <laughs> and it went on the ground, um, women were using it. There's not been a freshman woman elected 
to Congress since 1996, save for Shelley Sakula Gibbs, who is basically a seat holder. From Texas. From, from Texas, yes. Um, and I mean, it, two years ago, I asked Sheila Jackson Lee at the DNC, are you worried that there could be a point where there are no women in the delegation? And she didn't rule it out. If she hadn't thought about it, she was like, oh. Um, and so, but with Veronica Escobar and Sylvia Garcia, we are guaranteed to have, you know, unless an asteroid hits two women. Um, and I, I mean, they're strong, Bunny Pounds in the um, Texas 5th. She's got the endorsement of the incumbent, Jeb Henserling. Um, so I, I think that there's, I'm not even referring to it as a single candidate. I'm referring to it as a class at this point. Because I think there's a valid chance we get to have three or four women come to Congress. The, the, the fact is that a Gina Ortiz-Jones candidacy, if she ends up being the nominee in 23 against Heard, is going to be a different race than if Jay Hulings was the nominee. Right. MJ <clears throat> Hager in John Carter's district, who did not win without a runoff, but was the overwhelming, or she finished by 10 points ahead of the second place About person. 44%, two, right? two women in that race. MJ Hager is the nominee in that race against John Carter. Is a different race than if a man ran that race. Um, a woman's gonna run against John Culperson, right? right? I mean, I, we'll know when we know. And right? to, well, jump, we to jump on that, what I saw happening two years ago in a South Texas race was local men were consolidating behind Vicente Gonzalez. You could see that they were friends and they were just helping their friend out. And one of the big differences this, this year is that men are helping women. It's not just, it's, and it's, it doesn't even seem like a conscious thing. It's just for Jeb Henserling, Bunny Pounds was his fundraiser for years. For El Paso, Beto O'Rourke endorsed Escobar. That would have been a woman-woman runoff anyway. But you are seeing um, women rise in the political class. And it just is, is, it's not even that it's becoming, we want to elect a woman. It's just the obvious friend or ally that a man wants to help who is in power. And so that's been a huge change. The effect on the Texas House, not just the Congress. Well, I think more women will be in the Texas House this time than last time. If you just look at the yeah, I, I haven't done that. But you know, there, there, that you know, not not uh, not appreciably more. But you know, you, you had you know, so Trey Martinez Fisher beat Diana Arevalo, but Jessica Gonzalez beat Roberto Alonso. Right. So that's like a wash, right? I mean, you can kind of go down the list. I think there were definitely more. You know, more women are going to be. I mean, it won't be more like there'll be sixty as opposed to twenty-five or at thirty, but there'll be a couple more. It's not going to be parity. We don't know if this pink is a movement or a moment at this point, probably. But given how things are shaking out right now in the primary and the implications for the November election, are there any predictions for two years from now? No, I don't even know what's going to happen in May. <laughs> <laughs> any other thoughts? There, there's so much that we don't know. There's just so much that we don't know. I mean, Ross is really right. We don't even know the composition of the Texas House yet. Right. So you couldn't really venture a guess as to what direction that's heading in terms of a speaker's race or anything else. But it probably depends on how much this stays part of the national dialogue. I mean, candidly, I didn't think this, the Me Too conversation was going to go on as long as it has already. I mean, I feel like it's, this conversation sort of keeps growing in strength instead of subsiding. So I think that raises some questions of whether it can keep up that kind of momentum. Right. And I'm not convinced yet that it is um, connected directly to last night's results. I mean, this you know we've got some organic change in some ways going on here, to Abby's point. And I don't know that it's particularly movement so much as it's just 
an accretion. It's just a change. This is, you know, things are things are different now. I don't know that it's no, attached to because of this vote. movement. Then I'm going to vote for a woman, or because of that movement, I'm not going to vote for a man. I think it's more of, you know, that's this is the best candidate. I think it's just, you know. But I think the but I think these things are coordinated. I mean, I think you saw more women deciding to run in the first place in light of the Me Too movement. You know, we wrote stories about how many more female candidates there were in Texas this year. Like right. th that's not a coincidence. I mean, I will just say this. I barely knew. I, I vaguely knew what the women's march was. Uh, before it happened. I was so focused on inauguration. I was assigned to cover it the next morning. Um, I got down there and I had never seen so many human beings in my entire life. And I missed it completely, like just the build up to it. And I called a female member of Congress who's not in our delegation and she she was as stunned as I was and she said, who was behind this? Who, who did this? And I, I was like, I think it was just the internet. And so it was so organic, but it was just stunning that this, that it, I, I felt like something changed there, and I didn't quite know what it was, and it seems to have played out at least this far, and we'll see how much longer it goes. Heading, heading into every election, for as long as I can remember, the conversation was, could the Democratic Party get its act together? Are the subgroups of the Democratic Party going to be able to turn out their vote in sufficient numbers to make a difference? The O'Rourke campaign, O'Rourke himself, and people around the Democratic Party will say, Texas is not a red state, it's a non-voting state. It's a nice line. It may even be true. But at the end of the day, it's a red state because it's a non-voting state. If, I mean, even if you accept the premise of it, it's about turnout. And really, to the question of whether this moment is going to turn out to be a movement in November, are Democrats going to turn out to vote yes or no? And again, it comes back to candidates. It comes back to the political environment. You know, the Democratic Party in Texas is weak. Period. It is. And the motivation for Democrats to turn out in Texas has been weak. And it's not looking to be any less weak this time. You may see more Democratic enthusiasm in the fall. But it is what it is, right? It's a structural thing. It's a systemic thing right now. And I just think that people who, who you know, this is the world that you live in as opposed to the world that you wish you lived in. That's just, that's just the reality on the ground. Well, we're going to wrap up with Evan's existential message there. Um, <laughs> and, and ending on an upbeat note. Right. Uh, I want to just say thank you to Shiny Ribs for our theme music and to Texas A&M University, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, and Pearson, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Patrick, Abby, and our terrific producers, including Todd Wiseman, who's here, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Texas talking. Texas talking. Texas talking.